This morning is World Communion Sunday. We join Christians around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ from countless countries and languages, worshiping, uh, worshiping Jesus and studying God's word. This morning's passage from Mark introduces the teaching of Jesus in a world of tension. Jesus is Lord and Christians are one in him and his work. Christians are part of an eternal kingdom and are invited to celebrate his family reality today. Let us hear the word of God. Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter, 30, uh, chapter 9, verse 38 to 41. Mark 9, 38 to 41. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Follow me with the following response. All fresh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. speak from this. So I have a heavy heart this morning for the hope of this passage, and that is that God's people will truly celebrate the unity that we have in God's work uh, and in his word. Thank you very much, Bob. I appreciate it. Wow, now you're going above and beyond. I can, I can definitely hook this to my parents. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm going to put this down now. And he just illustrated the final point today. So uh, here's the truth. Uh, the division in the fabric of our nation, the United States of America, uh, is growing deeper. And more than ever, the hostility is increasing against the people of God. Now, more than ever, we have to understand the unity that we have in the Lord, in his work and in his word. I'm reminded... As I prayerfully consider this passage and preaching this morning of the movie Gladiator. Have you seen the movie Gladiator? It's a fantastic movie. But there's this scene that the first time Russell Crowe's getting ready to be sent out into the Colosseum. He's back there with a whole bunch of other slaves. They have no idea what's out there. And Russell Crowe, in a moment of leadership, looks back at the slaves that are uh, getting ready to walk into the Colosseum with him. And he says, gentlemen, I do not know what is outside of these doors, but I do know that whatever's out there, we're gonna have a better chance of surviving if we stick together. The heart of that as Christians uh, enter into a completely new uh, normal, actually for the United States, uh, for what it means to follow Jesus, the cost that we will incur, here's the truth. We will be stronger together. And the heart of this passage is gonna compel us as we identify the tension that is in our world to 
come into ranks behind the teaching of Jesus Christ, that we could follow his tactics and live most faithfully for his glory in such a time as this. So, before we turn to the word of the Lord, will you join me in going to the Lord of the word together in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. You reveal yourself as a good heavenly father. And that you showed your love to us that while we were your enemies, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Lord, thank you that by the blood of Jesus, we are as Christians one family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, I ask now that as we study your word, that your Holy Spirit would make tangible your love for your family and that you would strengthen us and nourish us through the means of grace of prayer and studying your scripture and coming to the table, that you would strengthen us for more faithful and fruitful witness to you, Lord, for you at this time and in this place, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're just going to look at three words here uh, before we come to the table. Uh, the first is tension. Uh, the second is teaching. And the third is tactic. Then we're going to come to the table. You say, Mitchell, that's four T's. Okay, whatever. Right, we're not counting here. Uh, first is the tension. Look at right at the beginning of our passage today in John, uh, I mean, Mark 9, 38. John said to him, that is Jesus, teacher, we saw one, someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Immediately we see this tension. It's an us versus them tension. And this tension is really characteristic, not only in the fabric of our society, but also within friendships and families. I don't know if you saw the poll that came out, the study done by the University of Virginia. Uh, they did a very large uh, political study and, and found that uh, for the first time that they've had on record that people that follow individual candidates on each side of the two major parties of our country, uh, the majority on one and the near majority on the other, on both sides, are okay. They're okay if our country splits. The United States of America is leaning towards a clear majority of people who are okay not being united. It's part of the fabric, this division in our country and culture right now. Not only of our nation, but as noted, friendships and families. I was uh, talking with someone this week who was lamenting the loss of, of very close friends they went to college with. They, they live in another city in our state. Uh, their friends do. And, and because of their difference of opinion on the way to respond to COVID, both as an individual level, a, a societal level, a political level, that their friends no longer feel comfortable hanging out with them, talking with them. It is the division in our time is tangible, but this longing that we have as people uh, for unity, for uh, feeling the, the brokenness and the grieving of the division in our country and our culture, it, it, rep, it reflects a greater reality that we're created for. And here's what you're not going to hear me say today. You're not going to hear me say that we need to have unity in our country and culture for the sake of unity. What you are going to hear me say is what Jesus says. 
that there are very clear criteria for Christians to be one. And we need to cultivate unity with a deep level of intentionality now more than ever so that we can be faithful witnesses for our King. All through the gospel of Mark, Jesus has been revealed as the King of Kings. His authority has been demonstrated through his word and his work, the mighty works that validate him as a messenger of God, God himself, and his message as the word of God. And his authority has advanced. It's advanced through his work, his ministry, but also through sending out his disciples. And there is a reality that as the authority in the kingdom of Jesus has grown, that there is a tension that is emerging. And you hear it right in this passage. John, John the apostle, the disciple. Now you probably know John as the author of the gospel of John. And the number one way that he is designated in the gospel of John is the disciple who Jesus loved. John understood the love of Jesus. John is the apostle that at the last supper, he leaned his head against the chest of our rabbi, Jesus, the Messiah. He heard the heartbeat of Jesus on the night he was betrayed. This is an intimate level of relationship. That John is the one that comes to Jesus and highlights this tension, this us versus them. Hey, Jesus, there were people, they were casting, this guy was casting out demons in your name, and I told him to stop. Right? I don't know how John said that, but he probably said it with an inflection at the end as if to anticipate an affirmation from Jesus. But I told him to stop. Right? Now, why in the world is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that had this intimate relationship with the Lord, why is he so quick to operate from an us versus them mentality? Well, I think one thing that we can see in John's journey is something that you and I can identify with more than we like, and that is this place of pride. Now, you might not understand or realize, but John himself had tried to exercise a demon from someone, and he had failed earlier. If you go back uh, to uh, the beginning part of this chapter, you see that it's the transfiguration. And in, in Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 17 to 18, we see an embarrassment that John probably had. Uh, it, look what he said. They're coming down from the mountain, and, and someone came to the disciples, and John was among them, and he asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, that's Jesus, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able to do so. Maybe the Apostle John, who had this intimate relationship with the Lord, maybe he allowed his pride to be greater than his primary identity. That's possible. It could be also not just pride. It, it could be just frank embarrassment. Because right before this passage, uh, John and Peter or James and John uh, had asked their mom, they were arguing over who was the greatest and they had asked their mom to make them the greatest in the kingdom when Jesus came into the kingdom. Maybe it was pride, maybe it was embarrassment and shame, but something became greater than their primary identity, even the apostle John. Now there is no place in the New Testament where division among God's people is tolerated. 
And we're going to see how Jesus responds, but I think it's significant for us to note that even in the early church, in the church of Galatia, you'll remember that Peter, Peter actually uh, was racially divided and religious tradition divided. He wouldn't hang out with Gentiles, only Jews. And he, he perpetuated the, the addition to the gospel of circumcision and not just faith alone that saved. And it says in Galatians 2 that Paul rebuked Peter to his face. So within the people of God, all through the New Testament, division, whether it's racism or ritual or uh, tradition or uh, your pride or your embarrassment or whatever, it is not tolerated. Now that does not mean that there isn't a distinction between the people of God and the culture. Get this paradigm. God's people are called to be unified, one body, brothers and sisters with God as our father, one body with Jesus as our head, all of us a temple of the Holy Spirit. But we are holy, a priesthood of believers that are set apart. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, that we are to not conform to the patterns of this world but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And all of that is in view of God's mercy. Jesus himself teaches that we should expect conflict with the world, that there will be division. In fact, Jesus flips all of our expectations on our head and he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. So people that are one in Christ should anticipate conflict with the culture. The focus of unity is not to just be one. Let's all be happy and, and, and whistle and lock arms and uh, I like to buy the world a Coke and grab a hand and move on. No, but we are called to be one in Christ and expect conflict. I was reminded of this. I spoke a few uh, months ago to a group of uh, people from uh, the government in our city and some leaders in our city and I, I mean, out of about 45 people, I had about five people just come at me in fire because I actually believe in the authority of scripture because I had a biblical view of marriage and family and man, they came in fire. And you know what? I realized how weak I am, <laughs> how, how like much I overreacted and was afraid of the fire. But there's something about the other 40 people who are watching that when they see Christians who can walk through that fire, they see actually a witness, a testimony of somebody with us in the fire when there's conflict with the culture. I'm not talking about not being in conflict with ungodly, unbiblical culture. I am talking about, and what Jesus is talking about, the inexcusable contentedness and complacency the church has in being okay and allowing that culture to infiltrate the ranks of King Jesus and the family of God. There's no place for it. How bad is it, Mitchell? Well, let me quote for you uh, Tim Daly Ripple. Daly Rimple? Tim D. <laughs> He's the president and CEO of Christianity Today. Here's what he said in an article uh, called The Splintering of the Evangelical Soul, written in April. There are new fractures forming within the American evangelical movement. 
Fractures that do not run along the usual, re usual regional, denominational, ethnic, and political lines. Couples, families, friends, and congregations, once united in their commitment to Christ, are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. In fact, they're not merely dividing, but they're becoming incomprehensible to one another. The gospel of the, uh, the Apostle John, and we talked about the Apostle Peter, even in Galatia, Christians today... We struggle with this tension to allow the divisions of our culture to infiltrate our ranks. I, I just want to highlight the amazing grace and love of God. You know, John and Peter and all the other disciples, Jesus went to the cross and died for. Jesus was separated from the Father so that we could be one in the Father's love, so that we could be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. That's powerful. That's beautiful. But it's not uncommon. Uh, this has historically been a part of God's people. Uh, I know a lot of you probably read Numbers chapter 11 in your personal quiet times this morning, so forgive the duplication. <laughs> but when Moses had elders uh, that were designated, they went to the temple, uh, they went to the tabernacle at that time, and they went and the Holy Spirit fell on them. And what's interesting is that two people stayed back at the camp, and these guys' names were Eldad and Medad. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh at that. I'm trying to, like, brush up on my Spanish, and I was like, I'm pretty sure Eldad is not Spanish, right? Eldad and Medad. And what's interesting is that the, this servant came from the camp. Because Eldad and Medad had the spirit fall on them. And they went to Joshua and Joshua went to Moses and Joshua said to Moses, you've got to tell these guys to stop living in the power of the spirit. They stayed in the camp. They're not with us. And Moses looks at him and he says, oh, that all of God's people would walk in the spirit. May all of God's people walk in the spirit. We should not stop anyone. And all of a sudden, Joshua, who it said had been the assistant of Moses since his youth, was put in his place by the maturity of the man Moses. Risen above. That it isn't in us first them. It's not a proximity thing. Who's from here? Who is here? Who knows this? Who does this? It's a person thing. A person of God. Being in God. Centered on his work, building on his word, and living as a gospel witness. It's not us versus them. It is only in him. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus says in the next part. The tension uh, leads us to the teaching. Jesus, in his grace, he rebukes his disciple. By the way, when you're rebuked by God, rebuked by Jesus, that's a gift of grace. It's because he loves you. We should welcome the rebuke of a loving God that loves us so much he doesn't want us to remain content with life that isn't lived to its fullness. This is what Jesus says in verse 39. Do not stop him, for the one who does a mighty work in my name will, be will, uh, will not be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus centers unity for followers of Jesus on the work of Jesus done in the word of God, the name of Jesus, and done as a faithful witness for Jesus. Word, work, and witness. And those things are uniting realities. And certain things in our culture 
that we take as a primary community or a primary identity, when we allow those things to infiltrate our hearts in the form of idolatry, then that will lead to hostility among the family of God where that is completely unacceptable because the work of God has united us to live under the authority of the word of God that we could be a faithful witness for the glory of God. That is a purpose. And rather than, and I want to do something for you, rather than kind of like slapping on like a a shame sandwich for you and just putting on jam, like, oh, we're failing so much. What I want to do, that's right, no no shame sandwich is served here. I'm going to raise your eyes because here's the truth. We're believing the lie that the church is not the most diverse people group in the whole world. We're believing the lie that the church is monolithic. And what I wanna do right now is I just wanna orient you with some data from scripture and from the world that you're living in. And this, I think, will encourage and inspire you. A lot of this I get uh, from a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin and Pew Research Center, uh, Purdue study that I looked at. So here we go. Uh, I'm just gonna say this. Christianity is the most diverse movement in the world and all of history. That's the way it started. Acts 2, verses 5 to 11, go read it. People from every single known country in the world received the Holy Spirit, the work of God. They celebrated hearing and understanding the word of God, and they went out to witness. The people that were represented, Christians from modern-day Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and Egypt. God has had a witness from the beginning, a plurality of his people. In fact, as our study, and we've looked at Mark, Jesus has already done miracles in Aramaic that had to be translated for the original audience in Greek. He raised a little girl from the dead in Aramaic. He healed a deaf person in Aramaic. We've seen Jesus uh, go out of his way to go to the region of Tyre, historically pagan Canaanite area. He had encountered in this unlikely place, an unlikely person, a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile considered unclean. He does the same thing in John chapter four. He goes out of his way to, to break racial and gender and socioeconomic boundaries that too often we use to define ourselves. And he goes and talks to a Samaritan woman. It's a way of Jesus. Even when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the sign that was put over Jesus was in three different languages. For us to think that Christianity is a monolithic religion is absolutely ridiculous and disconnected from history. In Acts 8, as the gospel began to advance out, it was a, 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 a political leader from the government in Ethiopia, a eunuch that was first converted from the jump. There was a diversity among God's people. We see it in Acts 10 with Cornelius and even in the early church, uh, men like Athanasius and uh, and Origen, all North African. That's the, the soil of our faith. And it's all true in the Old Testament too. It didn't just start with Jesus. In 1 Kings 10, Solomon entertained the queen of Sheba who came. You don't have to look far to see that Abraham's mission was to bless the nations. That Jesus, Jesus, easy for him to say, Jesus' lineage included a Canaanite woman, Rahab, an enemy of God. She married a guy named Salmon. Salmon, 
had, uh, uh, and Rahab had a little boy whose name was Boaz. And Boaz met another foreigner. Her name was Ruth. She was a Moabite, historic enemy of God's people. And bow, wow, wow, Ruth and Boaz got together and they had a little boy named Obed. Obed had Jesse. Jesse had King David. You cannot study the lineage of Jesus without seeing the nations, the plurality of the people of God. And that's not even including the work and the miracles of Elisha and Elijah. It was, a, it was Elisha that healed the Syrian Naaman, and he healed the, the woman, raised the woman's son from Zarephath, both Gentiles. And it was such a catalyst to hostility that in Luke 4, when Jesus referred to it, it led to the people there wanting to stone him. This is why in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, God says it's too small of a thing for my light and my salvation to only go to the people of Israel. But this light is intended for all nations. It is an absolute lie that Christianity is monolithic. We are a global people. In fact, the center of Christianity right now is not the West. It's not Europe. It's not America. Most Christians are south and east of us. Pew Research says that by 2025, China will have more Christians than any other nation in the world. We read a lot of headlines about China. We get worried. We start shaking in our boots politically and economically. And God's like, pay attention to the headlines of heaven. Your family, your brothers and sisters in Christ are expanding over there. That's eternal and so much more powerful. Um, a few other points of data that I need to read that I don't, can't do it from my mind. Purdue University poll says that by 2050, uh, a study, a demographic study, said that by 2050, China will be the, actually the largest Christian nation in the world. In 2060, by then, uh, Sub-Sahara Africa will have 60% of the Christian population in the world. Friends, <laughs> the majority of Christians now and moving forward, they're not looking like me. Thanks be to God. And I'm just tired of the church believing the lie that Christians are a monolithic family. I'm, we are, Revelation 7 and 9, 5 and 7 are clear. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation is around the throne worshiping the lamb, the center of our salvation. All of us, friends, are saved by his grace. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3 and Colossians 3.11 that we are all one in Christ. He is our Lord. We are not barbarian. We're not Scythian. We're not slave. We're not free. We're not male. We're not female. We're not Republican. We're not Democrat. We're not legal. We're not illegal. We are brothers and sisters, one in Christ. Do you believe what the Bible teaches? I do. And Jesus prayed it in John 17. He prayed that the disciples, his followers, would be one as he and the Father are one. That's intimacy. One. And, and the Apostle Paul adds, look at this quote from Ephesians 4, that we have got to be eager 
to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in the church. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who's over all, through all, and in all. By, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Friends, here's the facts. Family of God is greater than denominations. The father's head of family. Here's the truth. The body of Christ is greater than any organization or other affiliation. Jesus is the head of the body. We are one in him. And participation in the spirit is greater than any sort of selfish ambition that our heart can have. And this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Look at these verses. Are they on there? If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, Paul says to the to Philippian church, complete my joy, make my joy complete. Well, how's that, Paul? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, that is, with one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, considering others better than yourselves, more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. To have this one mind and unity where we don't do anything from selfish ambition, but we consider others better than ourselves, looking not to our own interest, but to the interest of others. Wow. That's the invitation for the church today. And friends, we don't know what's on the other side as we head out into the future but we are going to function and flourish on a far more fruitful level if we hold to God's design and be one. And this is the tactic that God gives us. Jesus gives us, he says, he says it might seem random in verse 41, but he says, truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water and drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose the reward. Uh, before I explain this, I want to uh, let you into the most biodiverse place in the world underwater uh, is called Raja Ampat. Uh, Ampat is Indonesian for four, Satu Dua Tiga Ampat. Four, Raja is king, four kings. These four islands on the northeast part of Indonesia actually has more currents that come through it from different parts of the ocean than any other part of the world. There is more diversity, there's more unique species in that one place than any other place you'll find anywhere in the ocean. There are so many things that don't exist anywhere else except there. The life is teeming. Why? Because of the diversity of currents that come together as one. And what Jesus is saying here is that you want to have life and have it abundant. You want to have life and have it to the fullest. Then celebrate all of the streams of diversity that come in so that there can be a fullness and a fruitness to, fruitfulness to who you are. And this is consistent with all of redemptive history and scripture. You can start picking if you want. You know. we're, Renee, we're glad you're here. Um, yeah, he's up there. He's ready to go. I get it. It's like the Oscars, right? It's like you finish the speech and the music starts playing. It's like, all right, I got a couple more minutes here. All right. It's like, I really want to thank my grandmother and her dog. You know, I wouldn't be here without him. But what happens, uh, 
In scripture, if you look at the, the picture of redemptive history in Genesis chapter one and two, creation, if you go back and read it, the diversity there is just astounding. This beautiful teeming of life and just God's imagination and creativity going crazy. Read it and ask the spirit, Lord, help me to see the diversity in this passage and it will blow you away. In the end of redemptive history, uh, when you look at Revelation 21 and 22, ask the Holy Spirit, read it later, the diversity of people, of, 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 of creation and cultivation and of all that you read at the end. I mean, even the, even the life that's there, the different trees and the fruit, uh, it's unbelievable. In the beginning of history, the end of history through Christ is this picture of almost like the Raja Ampat, of this unbelievable teeming of life that comes from diversity coming together. And the question is, how do we have that now? I mean, Jesus is king. He's already died and bought those who believe in him. His kingdom has come, but not yet fully. What does that mean? Jesus says it's not the current of the Indian Ocean that comes together, the Pacific Ocean and the South China Sea. Those aren't the currents that need to come, but it's this living water that's given to one another. But Jesus says that if you give water to your brother and sister in Christ, you won't lose your reward. What is that water? Well, first of all, all through scripture, water is this gospel pronouncement of the reign of God. And you can go back to a place like Isaiah 51 that begins with saying, come to me, all who thirst, come without money, and you can have water. It's the gospel, the good news that our God reigns. But not only is water symbolic of that, but it's, it's symbolic of Jesus Christ himself. And he was talking to the woman at the well in John chapter four. And he's like, you drink this water from this well, you're going to thirst again, but you could have the living water and be satisfied forever. So the water then is symbolic of the gospel of God throughout all redemptive history and the person of God, Jesus Christ and him alone that can satisfy but why use this imagery of water here? Why does Jesus do that? Because when we look at uh, scripture in different places where Jesus is revealed on the throne, then that image of, of caring and giving that which has been given to us, uh, it's significant. One place in particular is Matthew chapter 25. And maybe you're familiar with this passage where uh, Jesus says, what you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Do you remember that? And that comes in this context where Jesus is on the throne. He's giving us a window to the final judgment, and he's actually separating the sheep and the goats. The point is not that we're all, oh, we're all unified, happy with culture. Yeah, everything's fine. No, there are people even who claim to know the work of God personally, who claim to know the word of God and want to be a witness of God, that have completely missed what it means to have a relationship with God. Those are goats. At the end, the good shepherd separates sheep from goats. I had somebody say to me two weeks ago, oh, things are getting tough for Christians. God's really separating the sheeps and, sheeps and the goat right now. People who really believe, I said, yeah, you're right. But do you know what the distinguishing characteristic is of sheep? People who are identified in the work of God, Jesus Christ, the word of God and living for the witness of God, you know what it is? That when we see the naked, we clothe them. When we see the homeless, we care for them. When we see the child who's thirsty, we give him water. Matthew 25, Jesus says, what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. That when we divest for others' advancement among the family of God, that creates a unity, a people of God, that is a witness for the glory of God. 
somehow, in some way, what God has given you in this time, in this moment, relationally, financially, educationally, influence, vocationally, geographically, everything God has given you, he has given you so that you can bless other people. That's why you have it. You don't have it for yourself. You have it for his witness among your neighborhoods and the nations. And when we give water, the gospel in Jesus Christ, to our family, brothers and sisters in Christ, you will not lose your reward. And I promise you, it is far greater than any reward that this world can give you. In church, if we're going to be a faithful witness, we have got to understand the tension that we're up against. We don't know what's out there, but it will cost us. I need you, and you need me. And we must celebrate the ridiculous, crazy love of our Father and the teaching of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we've got to be one even as they are one, so that the tactics of divesting in a gospel way for the flourishing of his people might be a witnessing for his glory. You say, Mitchell, I don't know if I have enough strength to do that. I don't know if I have enough self-resolve. And I say to you, you know what? You don't. You don't. The point of this passage is not go out and try to be more unified. Go out. Give everything away. That's not the point. Go out and try harder. The point is, we have a God that's done that for us. We have a God who loved us that while we were his enemies, he died for us. We have a God who had the status in heaven. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it was the night that Jesus was betrayed by the disciples who had followed him for three years. He went to the cross and died for them. It was that night he was betrayed so that we know we can be accepted, adopted as children, moving from orphans to sons and daughters of the king and to receive his spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that night that Jesus was betrayed so that we can be accepted, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you, for you, for you, for you. And for our brothers and sisters all around the world, given for you, every tribe, tongue, and nation, given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he poured it out. And he said, this is the new covenant of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. <laughs> A new covenant. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And friends, he will come again. And he'll be received as king by people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We're going to come and receive his grace. This is what nourishes our hearts. And we come acknowledging our poverty so that we can taste the riches of his faithfulness. We come acknowledging our death so that we can feast on his eternal life. We come acknowledging our divisions and the idolatries of our hearts that have perpetuated those so that we can celebrate the acceptance that we have in Christ. We come acknowledging our fear and engaging the culture, our fear of facing the fire, so that we can feast on his faithfulness in this, passage, in this means of grace. So I'm going to pray and set us apart. And we're going to come set this apart. We're going to come, our servers are going to come forward. Please wait until the ushers release your row. And you're going to come up and you're going to eat. If this table is for all Christians, 
everybody who celebrates Jesus Christ as Lord. If you're not a Christian here today, this table, I want you to just look at it and ask for God to bless you. We have people that want to pray with you. I'm happy to pray with you, but this is Jesus's table for his family. And we'd love for you to become a part of his family if you don't have saving faith. But if you do, this feast is for you. Come and eat. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given yourself so that we can find ourselves, that you died so that we can live. We thank you for your blood that cleanses us. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you'd set these common and ordinary elements apart, the bread in this cup, and that you would help us to extraordinarily encounter you. Lord, nourish us with your work and your word that unites us, that you might shape us to more faithfully and fruitfully serve for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.